0: Hello. Hello. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm very well, thank you. Um, I know that we've been trying to get on again for yeah. a while. Yeah, welcome back. And the other day, we practically had a whole trapidemic in your office. Just we sat did. there, nattering.
0: That happens a lot. Mm. That happens a lot. Charlotte, that happens a lot with Charlotte as well. Yeah. Yeah, talking for hours. So, so bit, this can bit be different a... different when that's there. It's bit, a bit different. A bit, bit different with the microphone, there. So, this can be a standalone podcast. People may not have heard your first one. Right. You were episode five. Mm -hmm. this is now 15 people may not have heard that first one okay introduce yourself okay and what you do
1: Uh, my name is Cal Cooper Um, though if anyone's read anything that I do my author name is Callum E Cooper Um, all my papers are in that I'm a lecturer at the University of Northampton I'm a chartered psychologist my doctorate was in thanatology and positive psychology looking at coping strategies and recovery and bereavement uh, due to various experiences people might have in some instances anomalous as well and looking at comparisons between people that had anomalous experiences and didn't Um, And my lecturing at the university involves uh, a, a number of things i'm the module coordinator for third year parapsychology um, that was all set up back in the 1990s by people like Professor Chris Rowe, Professor Deborah Delanoy, and Dr. Simon Sherwood. Still going to this day, still a highly strong and really popular mod, uh, module. We probably get, get about 60 students yeah. um, every year taking it on. And by third year, we have very few psychology students because of single honours and joint honours and having all different module choices. Um it's really interesting to see their engagement with the literature that you know, usually they won't get any exposure to unless they've got a specialist university library. Because to that point, all they've had is the popular media and the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, so they get a lot of misinformation. It really shocks them when they actually go into various peer-reviewed journals, inside and outside of parapsychology, to just look at the sheer volume of stuff that has been done. Because some of these people are typical, in in the sense that they might say, "Well, there's nothing's ever been done on that," and then they discover it has a lot yeah. of it has. I um, lecture positive psychology for first and second year. Second year we call it well-being. Within that, um, I cover different topics such as um, hope, love, gratitude, forgiveness, and therapy techniques such as um, aqua therapy, um, so that could be involved in physiotherapy for recovery yeah. or even um, throughout pregnancy uh, with aqua yoga and aqua yoga techniques and I also lecture on the social world, understanding the social world, in which I cover topics such as um, sex crimes, sexual behavior, Um, now I'm bringing in cyber psychology as well uh, to this next academic year, and also death, dying, and bereavement, so that's where that crops in. And I think besides that, all I've got are are duties of um, supervising research degrees, so I've got two PhD students under my wing at the moment, both of them dealing with dissertations surrounding near-death experiences, um co-supervising those with Professor Chris Rowe and more students on the way, it seems. We're getting a lot of interest at the moment for people coming here to do research degrees and um, through various large funded bodies, which is great. You know, that's gonna really help us publication-wise for the REF and also with the, the variation of things that we've got going on within our new research center, EECS, Exceptional mm-hmm. Experiences and Consciousness Studies, ranging from parapsychology to transpersonal psychology, consciousness studies, cognitive studies, and neuroscience, mm-hmm. so we've got a wide kind of range of different interests there. So I guess that's me in a nutshell, really. I, I can't think of anything else. Besides that, I do a bit of media stuff, Yeah, not only the podcasts, fun to do podcasts, but um, uh, I do bits of TV now and then, so I was filming for ITN recently, uh, just following up some BBC stuff at the moment. Um, usually a representative for parapsychology when I go on and do that, but I've, I've had other things for like positive psychology, you know, would you go on the radio to talk about the psychology of happiness? Or sometimes bereavement stuff's come up when they uh-huh. had the anniversary of Diana's um, death. Um, they, they were doing a lot of talks on the radio for that. So
0: It's important that you can do that because most academics don't do that sort of stuff. Yeah. So it's hard to get information out to the public.
1: That, that was one of our discussions the other day when we were talking about the importance of this. Mm. Uh, and that's certainly the way the university is going. I think most of them are moving forward. Not only do they want um, digital learning... Um, as far as possible just doing they say to incorporate it I mean I hope that when we do transition and any other university that transitions it is still keeping that fair balance because it's very clear the students like someone physically there lecturing them they want that that's what they they paid for they want to interact with people that know the things that they want to know about Um, but then in other ways the digital stuff's really handy if we can get in through Skype and collaborate lecturers that are willing to lecture the students but they're in a different country or a different part of the UK really handy and then all all different things like the Padlet and things like that ways of creating discussion groups online when you can't possibly get every single student together or they've got different commitments because of uh, family care child care work commitments and all sorts so um, I see the benefits to that but that's also where what we discuss the media side of things come in if you do things like this podcast and YouTube videos and Um, upload your lectures even, in some cases, to YouTube, then it's there for someone to catch up and watch at any point. Um, (laughs) Also to
0: attract new students. Yeah, absolutely. Because if they know you're here, and they're a fan of the stuff you do elsewhere, I mean, they may only know, I mean, how many universities have a a parapsychology module? Um, In the UK, about 12. So, there you go, so they see you on television, University of Northampton, they know straight away, Mm. here's one place. That I can do that. Well, we did have quite a lot of that. I mean, around about 1999, 2000,
1: um, th- as you know, don't want to mention any particular program names, but that there was a surge of popular paranormal TV shows that were going on. Most, uh, I'll mention names. Uh, Most <laughs> haunted and yeah. those kind of things, right? Th- there were those and ghost uh, hunters. That's yeah. That's um, so really misleading stuff, as th- because in some cases they'd they'd have some people labelled as a parapsychologist in them. Um, uh, and some of them were admittedly actors, like Jason Carl. Mm. Um, he was listed as a parapsychologist, and it's weird because some people, I, even I, contacted him after a while and said, "You know, where where are you based, Jason? What was your background?" He said, "I've got to let you know, you know, I'm interested in doing the research and so forth." And he he's read a lot, um, but he's an actor first and foremost, so he's portraying the part of a parapsychologist, which didn't look good in hindsight when people discovered that. So after yeah. that, they got people like. Um, Dr. Matthew Smith, Dr. Kieran O'Keefe, Louis Sava, um, and then even some reputable researchers, people like David Scanlon um, and Steve Parsons. Uh, Steve Parsons still got his PhD on Infrasound as well, so they got these people in. Um, but it was stuff like that, seeing that now and then when they turn to the expert, it's a da 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 parapsychologist or university of such and such. We were seeing that that was having an impact because we get people that would come here to do a whole three year undergraduate degree and they get to the third year module of parapsychology and you do the whole introduction, here's your module guide, here's the reading list, here's yeah. the assignments you've got to do, here are the dates and deadlines. So let's have a little go around the the class, You know, why have you combined this module with all the other studies, why have you picked it? And within that, as I say, 50 to 60 students or so in this class, you get the odd four or five that say, "I'm I'm doing this module because I want to study parapsychology. And I said, well, why didn't you just read the books and so forth? Uh, and they said, well, because I want a natural qualification. And I said, yeah. so you've gone through an entire psychology degree just because you know we've got a third year module and you could do a dissertation with us mm. on it. And i yeah. But I suppose in many ways, there's a lot of parapsychologists that did that because they were told if you want to get into the field, get a, a good grounding in one of the sciences. So psychology, physics, Mm, uh, you know, then more social aspects, a sociology degree, a philosophy degree, things like that. And then later on, specialise, um, even anthropology and history. There's quite a few parapsychologists that have got very backgrounds, but not in psychology. I imagine history would be useful. Yeah, I mean, kind of we've got uh, Dr. Andreas Sommer, who um, you've probably seen, um, he's doing a lot with Forbidden Histories. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was based for a long while, up until recently, at the University of Cambridge, which. Um, absolutely brilliant and that's where parapsychology all started at trinity college cambridge in 1882 when the society for psychical research was formed so he was teaching about the history of psychical research and the dialogues between um, henry sidgwick who was a founder of the british spr and a scholar of the history of medicine with william james who was one of the the founders of the american spr and he was looking at a lot of the correspondence there was part of his phd but it was also part of his his teaching it was just great that cambridge once more was teaching about the history of this within the history and philosophy of science so it was really cool to actually show this is where it all brewed from this is why freud had dealings with parapsychology this is why Jung had dealing with it this is why ha- havelock ellis did this is why loads of people did um, and so he's kind of uncovering how various people have dipped in and out like albert einstein and madame curie you know you, you can start to form a list of people where you think really they were involved
0: in parapsychology at some point uh, what kind of w- experiences are we are we talking about with these people dipping in and out? What kind of involvement are they? The
1: ones that I saw particularly, I mean, for the ones that i read upon, um, Madame Curie, um, I've completely forgotten the medium. I want to say Usapia Palladina, but I'm probably wrong. Um, she dipped in looking at um, a medium anyway, and I've forgotten who she was with. Maybe she was with... Um, William James in those ones the the one I remember more so for Albert Einstein was he was in correspondence with j. B. Ryan and it was following the the whole kind of debunking of um Marjorie and it was debunking to the the sense that they discovered that she was offering sexual favors in the seance room for good reports. Um, through members of the American Society of Psychical Research. And that's what caused the big split and created the Boston Society for Psychic Research, that one of their lead researchers was Dr. Walter Franklin Prince. Um, There's some um, kind of critics saying that he wasn't kind of thorough in his methods, but they contradict when you look at people's reviews of him, and they say he was more thorough than any scientist they'd ever looked at. Mm. So I I think the critics didn't like the fact that even though he was being sceptical, that he was unearthing things that didn't have a conventional explanation. So their way to shush that was to say that he wasn't critical enough, even though they weren't looking at it themselves. It's like what we discussed about of, oh, it doesn't happen, but I haven't read about it. Yeah. Um, But anyway, Albert Einstein, um, Ryan was talking to him and Ryan had left this whole seance and ghost hunting scene because he saw there was too much room for fraud and all these controversies going on. And by that time he was already settled at Duke University. Um, and, and doing the card test and starting to pioneer statistical science with the statisticians there. Uh, but now and then, if a séance really did seem like something was going on and they couldn't figure it out, they were taking magicians along and escapologists and saying to them, look, you're the expert here when it comes to trickery and fraud and deception. How's this person doing it? And if it was defying the magician, then they might start to dabble with other scientists, big names, if they could get them in to see if they could shed any light on how they were doing it. And there was one particular medium. I don't even know if there were names. Stacey Horn mentioned it in a book, Unbelievable. Um, correspondent with Einstein said, look, we've got this medium. We can't figure out how they're doing what they're doing. Would you come along and take a look? Sure, you know, you've got the perfect case here, so it seems. And I said, I'd come along if you got that kind of case. Uh, came along, sat in the seance room. Two assistants came with him as well. And Ryan had actually seen some things allegedly happen with this medium and on The day, the time that Albert Einstein turns up, nothing happens at all. Einstein loses all interest, Mm -hmm. rhyme furious, doesn't really bother with seances whatsoever from that point on, purely sticks to the university and laboratory stuff. But something piqued Einstein's
0: interest to even come and explore. Yeah, dabbled.
1: Yeah, there's quite a few people that dabbled. I mean, even go on to inventors like um, Thomas Edison. And he'd come from a a spiritualist background. His parents were spiritualists, and he'd got Polish-American lab assistants who claim to be mediums as well and there's some documentation that said on some evenings after he'd done a whole day in the lab he'd then turn to doing some amateur psychical research and holding seances with these lab assistants see i
0: worry though with skeptic hats on that quite a lot of the, the the interest in not necessarily from researchers but the public interest definitely in things like most haunted and that kind of show it kind of comes from this this uncomfortable idea that when you're dead it's over Mm -hmm. so it's almost like we're trying to cling to something like it's not over yet there's this there's this other realm or whatever that's how
1: that's how i would interpret that are you seeing it as a a sort of a, a bad thing for people to believe that
0: no, I think it's useful mm. for people to believe that when you're dead, you don't just become compost. Mm-hmm. I think it's useful. Um, but my thoughts—you you do that to that a large extent. I do, do sort <laughs> of. Yeah, I don't know. See, I'm always in a place where I, I, I don't like to say something didn't happen, mm. or something doesn't exist, unless I have evidence for that. Mm. Uh, which means quite often I say I don't know to most things. I have no idea. Parapsychology generally as a whole thing, sort of anomalous experiences, is something I kind of am forced to say I have no idea Mm. about. I don't really know enough to say it doesn't exist. Mm.
1: Well, the good thing is, you know, in your position as a lecturer here and in one of the universities, that has got one of the largest kind of collections of the research and yeah. A large research output. We were involved in a study only this morning that's mm-hmm. been ongoing for ages. Yeah. You've got access to the data. Yeah, and B- I get, beyond I get to what sit beyond people what most come in. you get to you sit know, in, you see group. it, and you're part of the the research group itself as well. From more of a would you say it's more of a transpersonal perspective that? Uh,
0: yeah, but the consciousness side. Yeah, and
1: consciousness sorry, studies and so altered, states, altered yeah. states of consciousness,
0: which has got clear
1: overlaps as well.
0: Yeah, I mean Johnny's PhD is an overlap, isn't
1: it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so back on that whole thing of this belief thing, I mean, that's been a lot of my work surrounding bereavement. Um, people might assume that you know, a lot of my research has been looking into, well, what evidence is there for life after death? I haven't done that, I've, I've written on the ideas that have already been presented. I can't say I presented anything new or original, but I've looked at those theories within the context of present experiences. Uh, and more so, what are the clinical applications of it? Why? What is the benefit for someone insisting that they believe that someone survived after death? Yeah. Um, and so when people were having sense of presence experiences or seeing an apparition or dreaming of the dead or seeing something they interpreted to be poltergeist phenomena, the only way I took that forward to to look at, well, what evidence is there, is when I, I wrote for the book Continuing Bonds, right. which is the latest research going on bereavement. And I said, well, with these experiences, which we're already aware of, that's where we get the Continuing Bonds model from, mm-hmm. what would make science happy in the sense of um, evidence for survival, of personality and memory after death? After death, right. And I said, we've got to go back to what some of the early psychical researchers were saying. And the only thing that would... It wouldn't be perfect, but it would start to get us interested. Are those cases where someone has seen an apparition and there are other witnesses there who aren't involved in the bereavement, they can see it too. So that's interesting. You know, At the very least, we've got some sort of group hallucination going on. Right. Or veridical information. So the dead has delivered this information that means nothing to the experient, um, but they've got to follow it up. And in following it up, it turns out that it is something specific to the disease and they've had to go down this line of inquiry with other right. people to find it out. That still doesn't ultimately satisfy this idea of survival.
0: But is that because, as you mentioned before, there have been fakes and frauds Oh God. as things have become popular culture? So the evidence yeah, needed to convince me that it's not fake needs to be far more yeah. substantial. Yeah, I've things. been
1: writing about it a lot recently. Yeah. Um, I think it was Michael Sudduth as well, who'd who'd written a, a full book on the philosophical examination of postmortem survival to this point, and and not to spoil the book too much, but his conclusion was more or less, you know, the evidence is good, but it's not great mm-hmm. um, because there are so many counter explanations that come up. Just because um, both both kind of well, if we just say there's two avenues, it's either is or it isn't. Both conclusions are very immaterial because we weren't there at the time. There's nothing physically to examine beyond the eyewitness account. Yeah. So we're left with very kind of delicate, sketchy pieces of evidence. There's a lot of it, and that's the problem um, because there's brilliant books like The Myth of an Afterlife um, that came out recently. It was a massive anthology, and it came out in the same year as Beyond Physicalism. And there were both uh, books that were, you know, anthologies or the leading researchers on either side looking at the evidence for looking at the evidence against um you know we do a lot of neuroscience here and it was really good research saying look when you look at the brain and the activity that's going on when you die um the brain activity is ceasing if it's ceasing then nothing is surviving Mm. i'm like well that's brilliant it's very measurable it's very obvious you cannot deny that what i would have liked to have seen which the book didn't provide for me and I've seen other people review it as well, is given that is the case, based on what evidence we have, how can we fit these instances of survival, those group experiences or the radical information, within that context? And they're not. They're just swept under the carpet. Right, so right uh, And I'm that's the annoying thing, because if you're using science to explain it so far, then we've got to have some way of using that uh, present data and it as a theoretical basis to explain the other stuff otherwise we're still at a brick wall and so that's all i've managed to write about saying we've got some good stuff either side and i'm favoring the neuroscience stuff but the thing that's frustrating me about the neuroscience is it isn't explaining the other stuff and the stuff on the other side the people dealing with it they can't explain it either
0: but is that does that difficulty come from the fact that when i mean much with other other phenomena when you try and put it in a laboratory setting it doesn't happen so much So, for example, neuroscience showing, yes, when the person dies, Mm. their brain activity stops. But what about the brain activity of the person seeing this apparition or whatever it is? Problem is then, is there this lab problem where uh, as soon as I put the equipment on this person, nothing ever happens?
1: Yeah, I did discuss that as well. And I said that that's the problem as well. You're not going to have someone walking about with EEG equipment on or something even more sophisticated with that just in the hope that whenever they have a spontaneous paranormal experience, yeah. you're gonna recall, well, what was actually going on in their brain? What you know Were they in an altered state at the point that that happened? Um, there's loads of evidence to show that people that are in some form of altered state are more likely to have or report one of these kinds of experiences, probably due to the altered state. Uh, but we just don't have that, we've just got hindsight. Um, all I've managed to say, in some of the recent stuff that I've written was, at least neuroscience is leading the way for some of this stuff, and there are ways of bringing it in. Um, So like Dr. David Saunders, Professor Chris Rowe, Rachel Evenden, they've been working a lot at the um, Stansted Hall. And we've got our own lab there that's sponsored by the University of Northampton. And they've been testing mediums and wiring them up to EEG. And I think that's a brilliant step forward. If you claim to be doing what you're doing, then, you know, the next step is to see, well, surely something different is going on within your brain uniquely. This extrasensory ability that isn't in someone who doesn't claim it and and tries to replicate it you know because I've tricked people before when I've been to events and they said could you um, you know for a demonstration on cold reading and barnum script pretend to be the role of the medium I didn't want to step on any ethical t- toes I wasn't pretending by any means to contact the dead. I was just telling them stuff about what was in their house and in drawers and things that had happened to them lately I completely avoided the whole getting in contact with deceased relatives line of inquiry that just wouldn't have been right mm. Um, but there was people that were just so convinced and and all I was doing was reading their body language I was well, making yeah, guesses Yeah co- cold
0: reading's fascinating. Mm. It's amazing to watch. I mean, that's why Darren Brown is so uh, popular because he, he can do things and you're yeah. just like how the
1: fuck did he do you Look where that? you can get like him when you've you spent so much time practicing and perfecting yeah. it. Yeah But uh,
0: imagine if he had no ethics. Yeah. And this whole time he was pretending to be real. Mhm. But, but he gladly does a whole spiel about this is not, um, this is made up, I'm not accessing this. Yeah, movie. I was
1: glad that when he did his early shows he always started like that and I had to remind people and they said, say, but how does he do it? And I said, just listen to the the yeah. kind of thing at the start. He'd walk towards the camera and it'd be that general cool intro- introduction saying... Um, you know this show um, fuses magic, showmanship, misdirection, and several other things. Yeah. You're about to watch. Boom!
0: Start he the explains, credits. He explains some of the things he does, which is great. So that when, when it's like a, an envelope, with a you have to write a film in it or something in this envelope, and he always gets the envelope right. Or you guess a film, and it's an envelope he wrote earlier, and he opens it, and it's the exact film you guessed. Mm. And he explains it, and it's because in all the auditorium hallways. He's put that film on posters. Mm. So you, you've walked past it for hours. For the last couple of hours, you've walked past that. And then subconsciously, that's what you put in. Yeah. Or, you know, if I asked you to select a vegetable, pretty much everybody goes with carrot. Yeah. Like 98% of the time, everyone guesses carrot. Th-
1: there was one that I absolutely loved. and I went to see it. Um, and then I saw it on TV. And because I'd seen the purposeful mistakes and then saw a live recording of the same show, but at a different venue. Yeah it then started to click as to how some of this was constructed. Yeah, it's very clever. Um, and there was one bit, I mean, it could even be throwing you in the sense that some of the things that you're told is how he did it aren't yeah. actually how he did it yeah, either. probably not, yeah. But that's what you're left to believe. That's the way it ends. And there was one that I thought that was brilliant because he played back all the instances throughout the show where he'd kind of dropped hints of what he wanted the person to do in the finale, Yeah. which was to... Um, A load of newspapers were thrown out and then someone had to select one of them uh, and it was a number of different newspaper issues and then select a single page and then uh, tear it in half um, and and then tear round a certain bit and just hand that piece back. He was trying to get a word selected from that just single piece that was no bigger than the palm of your hand and that's how the show was going to end, he'd have that word somewhere. From all these different ones and there was one bit that i thought oh that was so obvious and i remember him just talking about a childhood experience and he said it's interesting isn't it how when you have a bad childhood experience like you fall down and graze your knee or um, you're cutting up an apple and uh, the nice lips and you tear around daily mail <laughs> your finger and, and he just looked off to one side off yeah. stage straight into the camera away from the audience and said Daily Mail. Yes. <laughs> tear around, or he said uh, tear around essential. That, that came up in something else and the word eventually was essential. Yeah. But it gone through all that route and I thought if that is the way that it's done, that's very clever in, in programming the audience or certain members it in the way.
0: It speaks to the amount of information that we take in mm. and don't, aren't really aware of how much mm. we take in.
1: I feel like in this position I should know more about what he's doing, but I've got no need to because we no, kn- we no longer deal with yes. mediums and seances and things like that, and even when parapsychology did, we brought in people like him, people yeah. people who Probably. were professional magicians, who were professional escapologists, um, to debunk them or find out, well, you can do it by a certain number of tricks. Are they doing it the same way or can you, can you not fit it in to mm. the way that you do it or the way you know your colleagues do it? Is there something else? Just because they can't figure it out doesn't mean to say that there isn't some sort of stage trick going on. It could be something new and original. That's why you have those shows like, you know, trying to beat Penn and Teller at at their own magic tricks that they should know about, and they're guessing how it's done. There's still people that beat them. It doesn't mean to say it's genuine magic in the sense of, oh, I can get a card to dissolve in my hand, literally. No, no, there's some sort of misdirection going on. Um, But that is to say we've had mediums in the past where... Through the mediums, through the escapologists, through the scientists, through the lab conditions, there's been the odd few where, you know, you could probably just do a small list of them where numerous tests were done through their insistence and no one found the conventional explanation of how they were doing what they were doing. Still great results and so forth, but since they're, they've they now long since passed over, mm. we're just left with that. And that's the frustrating thing. That's yeah. the brick
0: wall again. Yeah, that's a problem. I think, yeah, that to me... That, I think, is the difficulty of some scientific communities Mm. to accept some of the data. There's
1: the difference between the sceptics... there are fakes. Yeah, there's the difference between the sceptics and the critics because the sceptics will say, well, here's the evidence that we've got and here's all the falls and the gents for that and this this is where we're at. Whereas... Some of the criti- critics that I've seen towards some of those particular mediums, it's bizarre when they'll say, well, there must have been fake because so-and-so said this, and that's my final reference to it. Like, someone sitting in an armchair voicing an opinion holds nothing against the data. You mm. can't just finish an argument like that. That's not how it works. It counts for Jack. Well, it really doesn't. If someone
0: asks me, do you believe in ghosts? My answer is no. Mm. But I don't believe in ghosts. Like, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that they don't exist there's evidence for or against there's a
1: completely different argument when you say is there any evidence for ghosts that's a completely different question a completely different question and so I've always used that when you know I've been interviewed by uh, radio shows and stuff like that and they always ask that typical question because they know that it slips into parapsychology at some point even though there are very few parapsychologists that look at ghosts and hauntings now but you know do you believe in ghosts and I said well it'd be foolish to say that no one has ever claimed to experience a ghost yeah for sure but if you're asking me is a ghost an independent kind of disembodied consciousness roaming the earth somehow. Um, I very much doubt that. I I really doubt that. Um, But looking at the evidence, something interesting is going on, and I want to get to the bottom of of what that is. We've got some interesting insight here into psychology and anomalistic psychology where we've got a load of things that could be adding up, presenting this illusion of a ghostly experience when it's not. Um, But we also have some interesting accounts of these group experiences or apparitions moving things or showing conscious awareness and intelligence. So what's going on in those unique
0: cases? That yeah. This is why it data, data is so important. It needs some exploration. Mm-hmm. To me, the, the most interesting thing the parapsychology covers it is ESP. So extrasensory perceptions. Mm-hmm. Anything, any kind of perception outside of our five senses that we know. And the reason that's interesting to me is because even super staunch, uh, you know, materialists, will experience some weird stuff that's not part of their five senses at some point they'll have some deja vu, some kind of weird whatever, they'll think of someone and they'll call them and yeah I understand the law of averages, at some point you think about people all the time and at mm. some point someone's going to call you Yeah. Um, but everyone has these little experiences, these, these things that happen when you're being human Yeah. and that's sort of what parapsychology is when it's trying to investigate ASP right
1: yeah, it's interesting because uh, again that's something we were discussing the other day uh, and even today um, because there was John Cleese um, after his help him promote Dean Radin's work and John Cleese had I think he'd been to at least one parapsychological association conference because uh, he's interested in the research and he, he was at Cambridge at one point so we've already mentioned that mm. um, and he was uh, interviewing people from the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia where they've done a lot of work on near death experiences and um, he was looking at things like what Jessica Utz had st- said regarding the statistics and, and how the statisticians seemed satisfied that by how the stats work and how the calculations have been done, the evidence is strong. So they'd sooner these real-world accounts of how these things happen. Um, and then you get varying outcomes, which John mentioned. One was you'll get the, the diehard critic who either admits that they'd not read anything Right. So it can't possibly happen. Oh, oh right. what have you read to su- suggest that? Well, I haven't read anything, but it just can't happen.
0: Right, yeah. They're like,
1: well, I'm sorry, but if you're a scientist, bad form. That's not that's how... Flat. The- that's <laughs> that's not- <laughs> flat Earth, isn't it? Yeah, that doesn't <laughs> work, just is um, be i is flat. I need to learn physics. I'd be more not. interested if you said that doesn't happen. Look at this box full of papers that have all been peer-reviewed, right. and they're all through to present day, and it's ongoing stuff. You've
0: completely missed this. That's interesting. But then the defence of that would be it's not my responsibility to disprove that these things exist it's your responsibility to prove that they do
1: uh no i wouldn't then
0: i guess would you counter that to say well here is our evidence to say that some things are going on i i think i've always taken the
1: approach that um i don't care if there's no evidence for esp or pk or survival
0: because there are experiences for it
1: well, we 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 had again. We we've discussed so much before the the podcast started. In yeah. that, as scientists, you and I are both interested in being data driven. That's the same as everyone else here in this department, as far yeah. as I've ever understood. Absolutely, yeah. people don't care about assumptions or personal opinions. Mm-hmm. They're only interesting if they get backed up by evidence. Yeah. And so, if the evidence suggests something's going on, and you know that no one's been fiddling the data or they've screwed up the methods or anything like that, and the data still says it's going on, then great, something is, is going on there, Let, let's figure out what that is. It's up to you as a scientist to interpret what that data actually means. And if you've got those real world experiences as well to back it up, then you know let's take an Occam's razor approach. It's most likely the least amount of jumps that's gonna be that. Yeah. Um, well, you'll get some people though that will say, well, the, the data's fudged because people don't have telepathic experiences and blah, 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 and the, it, your, your data's just not working in that context. But I always found that bigoted because when Ryan started to bring that in, and people said, well, the data's wrong or it's fudged. The You know, the critics were saying, well, it's all nonsense. But, great, you're using statistics to figure out how likely things are with human behavior and personality and memory. Why is not the rest of social science use that? And they started to use it. So it's acceptable when it's something boring and mundane. Yeah. But it's not acceptable when it's something that because of stupid labels like the word paranormal and supernatural, which are really stupid terms... Uh, you're already saying that something's happening when a word that's been associated with it suggests it shouldn't, but it does. Yeah. And it's a ter- terrible term. I think we've damaged a lot of it through
0: labelling. Yeah, but that ha- the same thing's happened in transpersonal psychology with certain things. Like what? So the word mystical, the term oh, mystical yeah. experiences, yeah. is a real thing. There's mystic- mystical experiences. But it's a bottle. But we're saying something's <laughs> mystical. It now has a different crystal Mm. Woo woo yoga man burn beard kind of effect,
1: and I hate that term as well. I think that's so. It's like trying to escape from an argument using the term woo woo.
0: Yeah, woo woo. That's one, and it, even spiritual. Now, I mean, I, I'm spiritual. Mm, it yes. means you have crystals in your house, <laughs> and wind chimes, and you know you meditate. Mm.
1: I like to go paddling, Beth. Whereas there is, <laughs> there is,
0: there is a psychology of spirituality. There is spirituality in psychology. There is a science of spirituality. Mm um and that's those two aren't disciplines aren't alone in doing that everything does that i mean physics to a degree has people that are a bit woo-woo about it i've always not real physicists but once it once it reached the public domain
1: correct me if i'm wrong because it'd be more so better explained from your experience of things so i my understanding of spiritual the way that i've come to interpret it is if someone is saying that they're spiritual in the sense that i get from being in academia and if they're living by it correctly, to be spiritual is someone who's open to consciousness and interconnectivity between other people and the environment. They open themselves up more to to experiences. Yeah, um, open
0: is a very good term for that in terms of in science. Mm. Quite often when someone in in the general public, people will say, uh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Mm. So an example for so me... That's very that. different to, to how the scientists would use it.
1: Yeah. An example for me with that is when I went to thailand last year um i'm not religious by any means whatsoever um but i really embraced going around all the buddhist temples and and things like that and i believe that for me knowing that that was some of the many things i wanted to do while i was out there and i did a lot of exploring new to old ruined temples i would call that very much a spiritual journey because i was i was doing the whole trousers on shoes off barefoot go and sit with the monk go and do some chanting yeah. Um. You know, go and smell the incense, wave it over your head, and and you know, go and throw a coin in this and bow to the the statue and things like that. i Loved it, absolutely mm. loved it, and I I really did feel that even though I'm not a meditator or anything like that, it's a very meditative journey and embracing that culture. And yeah, it was a cultural experience, but also I feel it was very much a sort of spiritual journey, not in this woo-woo quotation mark sentence yeah. it was I, I get what they were doing were and i didn't want to reject it i didn't want to push it away i didn't want to say what a load of
0: nonsense i thought lovely i want to experience some of that for myself yeah yeah and that's the same mystical and mysticism are actually two different things if you mm. in you know in the scientific community mysticism is a thing uh, out there in the real world uh to say something's mystical mm. i mean those kind of words have been used for for the in the u f o community, yeah, mystical experiences and which is uh, something that I can say I believe is bollocks mm-hmm. evidence aside i don't know, I haven't read enough to say whether it is or it isn't bollocks, but I can say it's bollocks, and it's misuse of the term mm. but that happens, and I think to a massive <coughs> degree that's happened to parapsychology with words like you mentioned, you mentioned paranormal. And damaging things like most I mean, Most Haunted was massive. Yeah. It was like X Factor. In it had live shows and
1: I've always said it it's it's had its pros and cons. Um its big con was being misrepresentative of what this kind of research is like. But did it bring people to the discipline? Some, but not in any way to make an impact. I mean anyone that came to do an undergraduate dis dissertation or whatever, they didn't stay for the long haul. Or but It, it garnered ju- public interest, surely it did. a little bit more. Uh, um, even on a postgraduate level, at that time, Coventry University had the MSC in Parapsychology, uh, and that was running for six or seven years. Mm. Um, and so, throughout that time, there were some people that had already got an undergraduate degree in something, and it was enough to transfer straight onto the masters. And mm-hmm. a lot of people did. They thought, "Oh, well, I want to do a whole master's in it." Um, we nearly what well, we we did for a while. We had Lisa here who was starting a PhD, but because of social um, changes and I think she moved house as well, and she just realized now wasn't the time for her to do it. Yeah. Um, but we've still got some people in the United States, but well that's way back, that was back in the 80s when they had an MS in parapsychology at John F. Kennedy University. People like Dr. Carlos Alvarado and Lloyd Auerbach, they're, they're still highly involved in parapsychology. And, and when they've actually had conferences for the Parapsychological Association in that area, um, they've had people from that old MSc program turn up which is great so even though they did it back in the 80s they've still got an interest which is is great they're just you know where's the money where's the funding uh, i i find myself in a really fortunate position but it's because i specialize in other things um you know psychologists first and foremost um and I, I do a lot of work for the university promoting science and um i i'm being paid to be a positive psychologist i'm being paid to be a thanatologist and the research and stuff that we're delivering on sexual behavior and things like that. But this is one of the largest centers in the world for parapsychology and transpersonal psychology. Yeah. So I'm fortunate in that sense. And also the fact
0: that I'm I'm teaching as well because people just don't get that role. And you have that ability and access to to media. Yeah. So to actually get some of these ideas and out. And that goes right. You're very, you're very good on the media. That goes you? back to the whole thing that the university now is
1: encouraging, even more so science promotion and uh, you know, through the media. And yeah. did look at what we've got in the department, look at the facilities, look at what specialist staff we've got, look at the library resources as well, look at the links to town and what it can offer you and the other links that we've got with partners and different universities. I mean, uh, I've got partnerships with Books New University. where are big on... Uh, positive psychology there and two parapsychologists they have a master's program master's in um, applied positive psychology and then also links with manchester metropolitan university they've had parapsychology going since the 1990s as well and um different area um different kind of um, advertising and all sorts they get about 100 students every year doing parapsychology Mm. which i just uh, when they told me that i thought wow you know that's incredible numbers Really incredible. But all their university campus is so close to the University of Manchester as well. They've got a massive student population just because it's a big city, but the two university campuses are so intertwined as well. Um, People like Neil Dagnall, he was at the University of Manchester and going between Manchester Met towards the end of him doing his doctorate years ago. Um, So there are quite a lot of overlaps. Now,
0: How have the universities supported you in your media? in terms because it's parapsychology it has this negative most haunted baggage doesn't it
1: i think well i mean we've got really good media connections here i mean we've got jason day now who's our press officer and i didn't even have to explain to him when he started coming around and knowing that um, within exceptional experiences and consciousness that is we get a lot of attention for what's going on in parapsychology and He's more so been like um, a sort of media bodyguard in a way because every time I've done a radio show, he's listened in just to make sure that the presenter's not doing something stupid right. if not, or, or trying to say yeah. something stupid. They've not um, tried to insult you by
0: saying, "No, oh, this is all nonsense, isn't it?" And then,
1: well, they might say that as a question, then want then to know what is answered. the
0: comeback to that. But um, it, it, to make sure that you're enabled that opportunity yeah to have, d- to, to have a comeback um
1: you know he doesn't like it when you know halloween will always be ha- yeah who can l- imagine media attention for you know what is going on when it comes to ghouls ghosts and goblins you know what do people they actually just want something entertaining yeah that's that's it um on the flip side at christmas time they're interested in bereavement and people having these strange experiences associated with bereavement because of being a time where people don't want to be alone around christmas and even right. worse if you've suffered a loss so that's strange that people want to know about that, but Christmas has always had this association with strange ghost stories as well because of Charles Dickens, and then uh, there's all kinds of multicultural stories associated with
0: strange experiences. Well, and peop- psychology will always have uh, that public interest mm. for that reason, because mm. it is a thing that, you know, everyone sort of wants to know about. It's almost, it's almost human nature to want to know... It's definitely human nature to want to know what happens when we die. Mm. I mean every single religion is basically focused around that this Mm -hmm. is what happens when you die so you should live your life this way or this is how you should live your life Mm.
1: so so back on that um protection thing um with the um jason's been very good i mean i did one round halloween one of one of many but there was one that he he called me or text me straight afterwards and he got really annoyed because he'd listened to it after i put the phone down and he said, uh, oh, I hate that. He says it was a really good interview, but the interviewer spoiled it because afterwards they went, whoa, ho, 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 <laughs> some, some sort of stupid, ghoulish laugh. And he said, right, it was good up until that point, and they've ruined it for themselves by doing that. Because yeah. he said, you've made yourself and the university look really good in how you presented the research and what's actually going on. You've looked at the fours and the against and, you know, good critical argument there and, and done it in simple terms so the listening public can understand. Yeah. why would anyone research that why are we interested to know and that guy's brought it down there was um oh yeah newspaper stuff we were trained ages ago we had this kind of media event for csap as it was before eeks when we we're in the center for the study of anomalous psychological processes yeah. and we had the media department come around and uh, give us training for if we do get approach for any of our specialist topics how do we address and uh present ourselves in front of the media and the big one was for newspapers because i found them to be so slippery sometimes
0: yeah they're more likely to take your words out of context right? that's it's that's the big thing
1: and and, and as we've seen that happens a lot um in the internet it's just yeah, it's terrible it's so easy to do with written word with the the great speech. thing is with like you know msn news and stuff like that is it mashes together all the different news companies okay. and all the different newspapers so when i follow different things like celebrity court trials and things like that <laughs> read every single one and you're getting a different story it's crazy
0: that happened during the whole uh countdown to the to the trump election in 2016 mm. you could flip between um nbc b not nbc what's the other one fox and then the other one begins with a c cnn yeah, CNN. Yeah, so Fox and CNN, you can flip between the two. Yeah. And one would be, Hillary needs to go to jail. And the other one is, Donald Trump raped women. <laughs> but it's th- that's all that, th- neither of them will do each other's mm. news. They're all very much, anything bad about Hillary was coming out of Fox. Anything bad about Trump, which there is lots of, of course, was coming out of CNN.
1: So th- they warned us of that, that even just in the printed paper, even small time ones, they do that. And so th- there's one particular newspaper in Northampton that I point blank every time the press office here says, would you do a piece of them? I say no. I've given them enough chances and every time that I've been interviewed by them, they've, um, even if I've seen a proof, which they don't normally allow you to do, mm. they've then corrected the proof to how they want it to read and just made it stupid. And it still <laughs> and says written by you? No, they're interviewed, they've okay. interviewed me. I mean, I think last time- it Would it, it be w-
0: different if you were able to write a piece, like an editorial?
1: Uh, Oh, yeah, because if that's it, I wouldn't expect my words to be changed, really, if if I'm doing that. You wouldn't be able to see the proof then, I don't know. Yeah, I think one of the last times that I I did something for that Northampton-based newspaper was when Star Wars was coming back and Star Wars Episode Seven was coming out, and they interviewed me on, well, you know, in the film, these people are portrayed to be embracing the Force and moving things with their mind. Doesn't that relate to parapsychology? And I said, well... Let's separate this here. This has nothing to do whatsoever with Star Wars. Star Wars is a fictional sci-fi yeah. story. You, you want to know. About but you this can thing see how you know people like George Lucas and other writers have got the basis from these claims of psychokinesis yeah. and ESP.:
0: Well, that films that massive always consult scientists as well
1: yeah or even fringe sciences as well ones that are on the borders of an idea i mean they they always joke about that when i've listened to the commentaries of red dwarf where they joked about something and you know they started in 1988 89 red Dwarf first came out and things that they talked about in terms of a fictional idea or gadgets that they had the weird thing is you now look ahead and it's a reality and they 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 were laughing so much star trek
0: yeah they didn't have the automatic doors that was just a <laughs> thing that was made automatic
1: up. doors through to even you know WhatsApp and Skype and FaceTime yeah, being like able to get someone yeah. instantly up on a video call wherever you are it works both ways really?
0: like someone's imagination creatively invents this crazy technology mm-hmm. and then some engineer somewhere is like i'm going to actually try and make that yeah i'm going to try and actually do this and so then you can at some s- point we get the technology to do that you see where that's
1: around. going i mean but what they were doing was you know yeah the, these ideas are based on some real-world experiences, but then they've been blown out of context to make an interesting story. Yeah, you try and get the Um, physics
0: right if you make a space movie.
1: I I separated it from that, and I said, you know, you can't associate this with Star Wars, and they did. And I turned around to the press officer and said, that's it. They've already done this before, and it's getting stupid now. Um... Uh, I'm not impressed. We're, we're just not promoting any form of science within the department with them where I'm concerned. I, what they I don't want to talk to this. them about death, dying, and bereavement. I don't want to talk to them about sexual behaviour or emotions or just memory. or anything. The, Whatever I do, it seems they'll make a gimmick out of it and anyone else here. Mm. Um, so you, that's why they said just be careful with newspapers. Um, and so that's where um, no Jason was like, oh, great, I'm glad you got that attitude because when I first met him, he said... You know, do you get a lot of stuff for the newspapers? I said, yeah, but a lot of the time I'll I'll turn them down. And he said, well, why is that? And I said, because if they come and say, could we do an interview? I'll say, absolutely, I'd be happy to do that as so long as I can see the proof. And they say, oh, we, we don't do that. We have a policy of not showing the proof. And I said, well, that's fine. I won't give you an interview then. Mm-hmm. And then that's when they think, ah, that's our stalemate. We've either got to give them the proof or we don't get the interview. And it's really no skin off my nose if you don't get an interview out of it. I guess
0: the only way you get that sort of, uh, fuck you, money attitude, is like is that trial and error. Like I've tried it once and you fucked me over, so I'm not doing it again unless I see the proof. Mm. I guess a, a lot of people would jump at the opportunity. That's why they. That's where you got to gotta be
1: careful. Some people are, are quite, you know, once they get a little bit of media fame or something like that, they're like, oh, I want some more of that. Uh, yeah, and you just sell their soul a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I'm like, it's not about that. You want to be well represented yeah. and. The the trouble is, the more famous you get for what you do, even if it's small time, it's within your own field, there'll be someone somewhere that really doesn't like what you're doing. Of course. And and they will take out of context completely what you're doing, just because, you know, it really matters to them. They've clearly got some sort of anxiety surrounding what you do, and it contradicts their worldviews, and they'll try and beat it down. And that can even happen within the media, within the newspapers and stuff like that, and... Or they're just trying to link it to some stupid story just to make their piece really good. Think you know I've got an interesting piece here. Here's a fictional story, and here's a person really dealing with it.
0: Yeah. Speaking of media, last time you were you were on the show, we we touched on uh, your quarrels, your fighting with uh, pseudo scientific media outlets mm-hmm. portraying you in, 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 and others. Uh, incorrectly
1: Mm -hmm.
0: where are we with that? Um, I think stuff like that
1: you've just got to leave it otherwise you're throwing fuel on the fire those people have already made their minds up Mm. I mean it goes back to the anxiety stuff again they've already made their minds up and we've seen from looking at different things that um, they're not interested in a critical debate and what all the evidence says it has to be driven down one route and it's the route that they're thinking otherwise it's just not going to go
0: but it's important to you to to remain like a defender of science in that case. Oh, well, the the university true science.
1: Yeah, the the university will always say, you know, we've just got to battle forward and and present science as science is. We can't take it out of context. If other people want to take it out of context, fair play. But we've got a reputation to maintain here, and so do all the other universities that we're associated with. Doing the exact same thing, um, you know. Every you know, especially with my bereavement work. Um, if people want to take it out of context because they've got the spare time or hobby to do so, fine. Um, you just got to be careful, though, when you're challenging an institution and stuff like that because the yeah. university is so heavily guided by, you know, legal circles and its, it's um, legal agents and stuff like that. And they will protect members and staff and, and stuff Absolutely. like that if defamatory comments are made. So.
0: Well, it probably goes even deeper than that. If one institution is in, is in a fight, you probably get all of them. Mm. I'd imagine, if it's about defending staff members.
1: Yeah, well, that's why we have things like the University College Union as well. Usually that's for internal um, things where some things happen. But um, it goes back to, again, these things happen all the time. I, I think the main advice I can give to anyone when, whenever you start to get noticed for what you do, people will, someone out there won't like what you do regardless of whether they've met you or not yeah they probably won't have read anything that you've actually done or if they do they'll have read the stuff that matters to them not the other side of the mm-hmm. debate and it's okay for people to not like you i i, I think I, I think even I'm, more than that it's yeah.
0: evidence that you're doing something right mm. it's evident if people like the the no press is bad press thing mm-hmm. or bad whatever whatever the expression is yeah bad press is still press whatever it is but um yeah, if you're getting the hate and the trolls and people saying, you ain't shit, that means you're probably doing something. Because mm. they're doing that because they hate their own life.
1: I get a lot of that <laughs> from people that are way bigger in their fields than I am. Uh, and they've had their own fair share of it. And that's always their attitude. Yeah. I think that the, the easiest thing to do, and the advice is right, and I heard it ages ago, was never, ever Google yourself. Don't do <laughs> no, it. I've never done Don't that. Don't do I it. Other to. people will. But then the weird thing is, and and I had that recently, they get into a really awkward contradiction where they start to talk to you and they mention something and they're really confident that that's the right information. You go, what are you talking about? Mm. And like, well, I read this about you. And like, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. No. And they're like, well, you've made a learning curve then, haven't you? Don't read stuff on the internet. Ask me. Ask me yeah. or read the stuff written by or me. Like or like your official or, site. Or, or ask Alex or people that know me. Ask people in the department. Yeah. So, um, we don't get that with students because students know that, you know, if you want to, under- we make them when they do a critical review and we teach them the value of review any paper you like, but weigh up all the pros and cons. I want you to go out and look at all the literature surrounding whatever topic you choose. Yeah.
0: They get a good understanding of sources as well.
1: Yeah, sources, debate, books, journals, proceedings, yeah. anthologies, monographs. They go out and check the lot. Um, but what we make them do first and foremost is go and um go and research the author and first of all we want you to make an assumption of what you think the paper's going to be like based on author reputation so we want you to do a tiny bit of a bio at the start just mm. within a paragraph and the amount of times we've had to kind of really come down on some of the students and say the bio is rubbish because it's it's defamatory and it's misleading and we think we know where you've got that from and it's not where we told you to so there are loads enough of, sources. there's loads of books in the library and we've told you the online sources that are credible and you've got them from other ones and what we've just seen is a bio that if you showed it to them they would start to get really itchy legal-wise because what you've just said is completely out of context.
0: Do you think parapsychologists get that more unfairly than in any other discipline?
1: No, I, I bet there are other areas of science that really get kind of hammered for what they're doing. Sort of misrepresented. Uh, I mean yeah i mean and and i mean kind of legitimate areas of science you know that i've been involved a lot in debunking pseudoscience and pseudoscientists Mm. uh, and they are dealing with really dodgy areas or fake qualifications dodgy methods they're not involved in any formal institution they're just working from home pretending to be someone they're not yeah uh and um but unfortunately they get a lot of media attention in some cases and for them to say that they're the same as someone working in a university department. It's a bad association. If they're getting the media attention, everyone thinks, well, they're dealing with psychology and it sounds very dodgy. Like, well, it's got nothing to do with psychologists in an actual university department are doing. This person's bought their qualifications online. These yeah. people have studied at formal universities. I think that happens a little bit in every discipline then, mm. I think. So yeah, so that. Yeah. I think I can only speak from the inside looking out. Mm. And what I'm looking at is I know it's out there. I know the issues are with some other fields of science but I wouldn't know unless I was involved in them. Yeah. Or I, I went to a conference and there was loads of different people there from different disciplines and I sat down with them and talked about these issues. Then they would say, oh, we get the same problem in art, and then they'd give me an example. That's it's a, gotta be there. Whatever you do in life, if you and I were bricklayers or we sold ice cream or we were estate agents, whatever business we're in, our estate agent would have a bad name against it because the one across the street hates us and they've been spreading stuff about us. Yeah, especially or, if it
0: rose to a certain level.
1: Or someone says that we're not bricklaying properly or we're kind of being really thrifty in the type of cement that we buy and stuff. Someone somewhere has got a problem with you. They will have. It seems to be human nature to, to, for
0: someone somewhere to have it a does, problem actually, with what you. It does actually, it does seem to be human nature, and the internet makes it really, really easy now to contact people. Who are the most famous people on earth and tell them what you think? About <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, look, look at the, I follow the rock on Instagram because he's super in- inspiring. Mm-hmm. He's always working and you always see it, he's always doing something. Wasn't that wasn't he giving like a foot rub to his wife who'd just
1: given birth the other day or something like that? Or he was holding the baby while he was rubbing her feet, he,
0: he never has a day off by the scene, by what by, by it looks like. His days off are uh, more busy than most people's working days, mm-hmm. but you scroll through the comments and then there's someone who'll find something about like, oh, your shoes are shit or something like... This. I had that once when um, when my first book came out and
1: I, I did some radio shows, some big ones in the USA and um, some people had then Googled me at the time and there's a nice picture of me um, in a silhouette um, wearing a, a suit. And it was a black suit with a sort of metallic turquoise tie and I had several private emails sent to me, I don't know how, and they'd they just come from the United States, and some of them were just, what's with the suit? <laughs> yeah, not <laughs> no, even it? about the content. And like, well, people wear suits, don't they? Yeah. like,
0: yeah, but you shouldn't, you know. <laughs> why?
1: What has that got to do with anything?
0: Yeah, there's always, someone will find something. What's with the hat? Like. What's
1: with the shoes? What's with the beard? What's with the eyes? Yeah.
0: It's, okay. It's just the the world we live in. I had some... Misrepresentation is a problem as well.
1: I had some strange ones on Twitter recently where someone thought I was involved in some sort of druid sacrifice, something, <laughs> and that I had to report them to Twitter because I just said, this is weird. Hmm. Because it, I didn't mind them... you know, If they want to message that on their own page, fine, but they kept on adding me in. So right. I, I kept seeing these strange questions and stuff about... Did they maybe put the wrong... No, they, definitely they, they kept on persisting. They put photos of me on their Twitter page and stuff like that that they, they'd tried to copy from the internet. And they said, D- you know, to the University of Northampton, are you, are you still sacrificing people? I'm like, what on earth? Report. There's Instantly report. Crazy. Get rid of them. I'm like, uh. got But again, remember. Our, our media department is fully aware of that. I mean, you know, I thought... isn't I this need sc- them to
0: retweet this stuff, man. I need them to get involved. Well,
1: we'll, we'll do that. We'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell Jason. I wonder if they even
0: know this is going on.
1: I'll they tell Jason. I'll, I'll let him know. But... It, it, you know that's the stuff that made me worried when when that kind of stuff comes up i think well isn't that going to look bad but they're completely streetwise when it comes to that because you know as jason said this stuff happens all the time there's Mm. bound to be someone that will say bizarre things you know that's the consequence of all universities moving down this media route now yeah it's not just the published papers that's important to us for the research excellence framework to get good um impact factor on where we publish i mean the next papers that i've got coming out i'm Aiming at journals for, I mean, one's generic, it's something that we've got sponsored for, but the flotation tank stuff's going to the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research. I've got a paper for emotion, which is, I've forgotten the impact factor, but I think it's like four or five, which is good. Um, There's another one on mental health that I'm working with uh, Rachel Evenden on. And then there's a summary of the work that I was doing on bereavement that I want to put together and put it back in the very journal that started it. So I wanted to aim for the British Medical Journal and try and get it in there excuse me, the summary of the literature review. I looked at their impact factor, it's 20. Mm. I thought, wow, if I can get something in there. That's what the university wants, but hand in hand with this. I've written it, and then tell people, explain it. What have you done exactly? Make it very clear. Make it understandable. So, you know, if people... don't have the ability to go and access these papers because if you're not involved with the university, it can be about £30, £40 pounds to da- download a yeah. paper.
0: And You just wouldn't unless you were sure that's what you needed to no.
1: do. That awareness for what you're doing and how what you're doing is making an impact and a difference is so important to get it out through the right media channels.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad last
1: time I was on that you told me that um, me being on had a caused a, a nice spike in the podcast. People were, yeah. were clearly listening because... Uh, I guess sometimes... It was the most
0: popular until uh, Sam is episode 11. Damn it. He beat you.
1: So, um, yeah, it's just important to... For areas that don't get discussed enough in the media to say, well, if we are looking at things like... and, And again, I'm leaning on parapsychology, ESP, PK and survival of death. Not only is it an interesting topic, but people want to say, well, if that's being studied at a university, how is it important to know about that? Where is its application? And we've got so many outlets, that's why a lot of stuff's leaning into neuroscience, mm-hmm. consciousness studies, mental health, and the clinical parapsychology take on things. Let's forget about the ontology of it. What is the difference that it makes to someone's life for having this? Mm-hmm. If it's a natural experience, what's the natural consequence as well? And that goes back all the way to your question of, are these things damaging? Yeah. And, and in the bereavement sense, uh, I trawled and trawled the literature for ages, and I still am because we're, we're involved in a big project with Geneva, um, and through the scientific and medical network um, on bereavement. And I even had a student looking at the negative consequences and tried to find f- the few people that we get. The percentage is so small, it's like 2% of people seem to report negative experiences during bereavement. And when she interviewed those people, they said, well, it was negative in the sense that it scared me it instantly mm. to see an apparition of the dead or something like that. But they said, long term, great. It, it made me feel so good to have had that experience. So that's all we learned. We learned that the only reason some people report them as negative is in the beginning, it was straight away scary because it was unexpected, it was spontaneous, but long-term. So given that's the case, long-term, what we found so far, all the research data says, and believe me, I've gone through every single bit of it, even the most obscure, rare journals, it's 100% positive. Hmm. Um, I haven't so far seen or been presented, and there probably is some out there, but as far as the data is concerned, um, what we've got on record is this 100 percent rating. I would love to find some cases, um, you know, in in a way it's bad because we want to then help that person. But where it's been negative and it's damaged their perception of death and bereavement because of it. And that's what I was expecting my student to find. But they didn't. They found that something I would out-
0: expect, that's the, That's the strange thing, because I would expect it to be damaging.
1: Yeah, you would. I would imagine it would be damaging. Yeah, you would, but no. Um, and that's why so many popular books have come about because of it. Is it like a closure? I, Is that what people yeah, we are thinking? Uh, I'd done a really unusual take when I was doing my PhD. I read 15 other doctorates. And I started off by reading Dewi Rees's medical doctorate from King's, King's College London. And then after that, it followed with no more medical doctorates. They were all PhDs and doctorates, psychology doctorates. Um, so a psychology doctor is unusual because it looks like a PhD by publication. It's right. it's a portfolio of studies sewed into a commentary, but it's like the three major studies that you might do, three to four. Oh, okay. And as a published paper sandwiched in, and then this extended so commentary... So a little bit
0: of, of a mixture of both yeah there's a a hybrid
1: yeah there's some universities that do like um a route one and a route two to phd by publication where if you've got three or four publications already you do two years on it and get a few more publications out within that time to sew them together into a commentary yeah or if you've got them already you just do that straight commentary Um, but anyway that's by the by i I read these um these doctorates and it was interesting they'd all taken a different approach they start off very quantitative and doing mass surveys of some two to three hundred people, and their experiences, and then it started to really boil down to um, in-depth interviews. And yeah, they'd had this initial shock factor, the two two percent or so, and then after that they said, well, in hindsight, I looked on it, and I'm so glad I had that experience because it was unique and, and blah, blah, blah. They get closure if they didn't get that chance to say goodbye, mm. they um, got to resolve um, a situation if they believe it ended on a negative, an argument or a fallout oh my god they've died and you know what a bad way to end it but then they had this alleged communication seeing them face to face or in a dream
0: there's so many different outcomes That's a strange parallel to my master's thesis which was uh, memorial tattoos uh, and the effects they have on uh, sort of as a transformative event and it was qualitative and those are the sorts of things that people actually uh, uh, experience they communicate to me that even if It was almost like i'm going through this pain and it's in honor of it's not literally just having the person on the body so it reminds them of them all the time that's that's a factor but they actually mentioned about the experience of being tattooed going through the pain Mm. sort of releasing releasing some of that grief releasing some of that pain and knowing that even though even if our relationship didn't end well i'm suffering for this like i did care this is what it means it's very strange Mm. Um, it was very interesting
1: well there's the University of Winchester they do a lot of stuff on death studies mm. and they even do um, two postgraduate certificates one is on oh, I can't, one is on funerary practices and it's like offered to funeral directors to do it like at the University of Bath they've still got a foundation degree in funeral directory mm. um, but the other one was on cemetery vigils Right, and it wasn't sewn into a master's. I guess you could use the credit to extend it, but they already had, they already have a master's in death studies and world religions or something like that. Yeah. But this standalone postgraduate certificate that's only offered to people again, I think within the funeral industry. I thought it was fascinating. It was about well, we've got so many cemeteries, especially in the United States. You know, big money in the funerary process over there because of the variety of things you can have done from state to state. Over here, it's just taking up land. Uh, no, drastically. You drive past some cemeteries and they're massive, and you just think they're all old. There's nothing new in there, and statistically, there are more dead people <laughs> than living, yeah. and it's going to keep being like that. Um, but the whole certificate was about what is the What do those places kind of mean? I suppose that goes back to the whole thing about spiritual journeys and spirituality. Why do we have cemeteries? How do they help us with the bereavement process? And and so the this qualification is about how people use them. Um, for holding vigil, How, are they are they going there daily to talk to the grave? Is it the routine
0: of going to clean it and put fresh flowers and yeah, uh, things I like think that? I and it's uncomfortable. Like we said earlier, it's uncomfortable to think they're dead. That's it. Like they just they just don't exist now. <coughs> they're just gone. Yeah, It's kind of comforting to think that there is something else you can still Well, in there, there,
1: there is something. It's a physical presence. You yeah, know damn well that they're, they're, they're six
0: feet under in a box. They're uh, still with you in a way. Hmm. In, it's just different. This way you have to just maintain the ground yeah, or it's clean it, or... it. To a large extent,
1: it's hygienic. They've been buried and um, they're under there. It's all settled. It's far more hygienic than you know keeping a body, which is illegal. And some people have tried to because they're grief-stricken state. Mm. Um, we've heard about those stories in the news, but in that sense, if you've been to the chapel of rest, you've seen them in the box, you know they're there. And I tell my students about this, I say, death is very much kind of hushed and shied away in the UK, unless it was like a Scottish or Irish funeral. John has probably told you about that because he recounted before um, the funeral with his granddad. And I think that was Irish heritage. And so there was this tradition of lining up and everyone went to go and kiss yeah. the body on the forehead. Which for some people was really shocking because they'd never even seen a body before. So yeah, instantly yeah. to be shoved in line and told, go and kiss it on the forehead. A funeral was the first time I've seen a body. Mm. So, you know, most people's representations in the UK is the coffin. Mm. And I think that presents a bit of a non-reality because it's just a representation of that person. Yeah, And it's still sad uh, and somber. Uh, I mean, I was, we mentioned Dewi Reese, I was at his funeral a couple of months ago the very guy who, who'd who looked at the benefits of the anomalous experiences mm. throughout his medical doctorate changed a lot of um, thinking for medicine um, on bereavement. And I felt sad when, when the, the funeral car turned up because I could see his family and so forth. And I, I think it'd be more comfortable to actually see the body than it would to not. I, it goes back to like the whole thing with Jaws and Peter, Peter Benchley's book through to Steven Spielberg's film. The scary thing was what you're not seeing. Mm. It's not as scary when you can see it because the reality is put in front of you and you have to deal with it. And and then the anxiety comes down. But the anxiety is constantly there when you're not quite sure what is there. It's constantly holding you back on a leash and it's not letting that anxiety go. But when it's fully there, you know, it's like flooding. We we talk about that all the time in psychology when it comes to phobias. Yeah. If you tease them with the phobia, they'll always have the phobia and you'll raise those anxiety levels up and down. If you fully put them in the position of they can't escape from the phobia the only thing you can do is deal with it because that adrenaline level's got to come down. Uh, And so that's the best way to get over a phobia in some cases. You either gradually introduce or you flood. It's only a
0: little bit related, but that's also how you get in an ice bath. Mm. Just go for it. Fine, just, <laughs> just jump get, in. Yeah. There's no point because you can tease yourself in, but it honestly doesn't get any better. I think it's worse. I agree. That <laughs> it I've doesn't been in,
1: get easier. Been in some of those dunk you, tanks and spas yeah. before when you've gone from a steam
0: room or something. Yeah. Like the, the plunge pool. The whole oh, you'll get used to the temperature. No, it's too cold. Is that, to w- it's that waistline in. bit. You just oh. uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> once it hits the balls, it's that's, <laughs>
1: that's, the, that's the bit. It's like when you get in the sea and it's cold and you're you like, oh, just feel, jump in. Yeah, you can
0: feel your breath go. You you have to concentrate on getting your breath back. It's You go mm-hmm. into sort of a panic, <laughs> like short breaths.
1: So we're doing a lot of Billy Connolly here. So to <laughs> reel it back in, if we saw the body, I think that would help. So with the fact that some people have the graves and the graveyard to go to, yeah. there's some physicality to it. You mm-hmm. had the representation of the coffin, but I think there's more benefit to that person if they got to see, at the chapel of the rest, that body. So then the lid went on. They know they've had that proof that the body is in there and then right. it went through the funerary process and you followed it to the graveyard and you saw it get loaded into the ground. part of the grieving the
0: process, isn't it? The, and, the and, steps, the no, disbelief? Is that one of the steps of grief? Yeah, there's the denial. The denial. Mm, denial. It,
1: yeah. I mean, th- that's, that's sketchy in itself. I mean, th- there's another area of um, scepticism. It's strange that so many people um, talk about the, the stages of death and also bereavement that um, mm. Elizabeth kubler put forth, mm. um, that you have these five stages that you go through, This this whole... Um let's see if I can remember them: shock, uh, denial, bargaining, uh, something else, and acceptance. Something, yeah. Uh, and but um, it's it's nonsense, it's nonsense. It's people it just made up. No, it's not made up. Um, through the observation she did, and it was very co- uh, qualitative, and it was very loose. It was a lot of long-term case studies with people that were dying, right. and they are there. They definitely are there. Those stages, but not in a set formation. And not all Line of them of i mean it was robert Kastenbaum. he'd said even by 1989 in i think it was in the encyclopedia on death and dying um that there's no evidence for it being consistent like that in people um and i don't think kubler ross was necessarily saying that that is the way but, it but unfortunately that. that's the way it's been interpreted okay. right um through a popular books that's how again there's that media outlet she'd done some really pioneering research to get people to talk more openly about death and bereavement and not be afraid about it. It shouldn't be a dinner table faux pas anymore. It should be a dinner table discussion. And it is now. People will talk about it. It's fascinating. And so her popular books were really highlighting something that beforehand had really upset people or they'd shied away from it. They just really didn't want to discuss it unless they had to. But with that has come some misinterpretation of the data. So, yeah, those stages are important and we can recognise them, but they are not five set stages that people specifically go through, every single person. It doesn't happen like that. We're too individual. We know that. I mean, you and I definitely know that from lab studies that you will not get consistent results. in, In psychology like that, it just doesn't work. I mean, look at that mass replication they did that ended up in the psychologist where they'd taken... Was it some 300 popular psychology studies and only about 30% were replicable? We, we get higher replication rates in parapsychology, and yet that gets criticized for not being replicable. Mm. And my experience from not only researching it and being involved in the data, last four, five remote viewing studies we did here, they were all successful. We haven't done one yet that wasn't successful. Good significance level, good um, effect size. And I've seen better in that style than I have um, in other styles of psychology. Strange mm. thing. Why have I said style? That form of psychology. Uh, the parapsychology yeah, that domain. Discipline, I
0: guess. That so discipline. The psychology will always have a replication issue, though. I, uh, I unless think the technology catches up.
1: I think we're trying to nail jelly to the wall in some instances, Well, I mean, though.
0: people vary so much. If In chemistry, if I take this much of this chemical and this much of this chemical and I mix it, I get the exact same thing, 100% of the time. That's replication. I'd say to
1: 99, because there's always going to be that. Well, what if the glass is contaminated and things like that? But taking that
0: out of it. Yeah. So if everything's exactly the same, I can. I can. In chemistry, I can control everything. Sure. To a level where I could do it every, time. but I'll say ninety nine percent. What if I sneeze or something mm-hmm. in well, the room? Well, we still get assignment.
1: that. Was it with condoms? The ninety nine point nine percent. Right. Yeah. So and there's ever, always that. Yeah, there's 100%. one faulty one that's come off the line, even though they're all checked when they go through the production line, or something could happen in the package, or it went out of date when it wasn't meant to. Or yeah. There's all those. There's all those possibilities. They secure just for their own security of. It's it's more or less a hundred but we can't yeah, <laughs> we can't put a hundred percent because there is always the what if. But Don't you know, sue you, me because you knocked her up. Y- <laughs> you, you can <laughs> easily place your bets on if you're wearing the condom, then the chances of pregnancy or an STI are extremely
0: slim. Are you hearing that, children? <laughs> <laughs> Do listen. <laughs> so yeah, the replication of the inside, because people are so varied, so complicated. Mm-hmm. The sum I mean, if you... It in comes into the free will debate, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> the sum of, of all of our actions and our genetics and everything that's happened to us in our entire life. We're capturing a snapshot of that. That's why if I have, have you involved in a perception study today and in 10 years, your performance is going to be different. Even if I have you in today and tomorrow, your performance is going to be different mm. because you're not a chemical you know whether you have a good night's sleep or a bad night's sleep what you ate the night before all of that stuff the temperature of the room the humidity every single thing yeah there's too many variables and that is what leads to people saying oh, it's nonsense it's I not nonsense what it is in fact is there's too many variables for you to compute sure
1: uh, i try to make the students extremely critical of positive psychology and it's great we've got some great data so far to show that highest scoring students for their overall degree are those that have taken all three undergraduate modules we have and it gets lesser so the less they've taken they've seem to have taken a course in which they apply their own positive psychology in better ways that they haven't before because they're opened up to how can i better my own emotions yeah. so if i understand it better how can i manipulate it to my advantage growth but um i was showing them be skeptical of these measurements and how far we've actually come with it because We had humanistic psychology before, and then thanks to Martin Seligman and that transition around about 1999, something like that, we've got this emergence of positive psychology, which a lot of people still don't like. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said, there's an importance here. So at the moment, I'm hoping that next year when we get to Buck's New University again, I want to talk about another paper where I talk about the scepticism of positive psychology and why and question why we should be sceptical of positive psychology as a science and what it's producing. So I, I gave the example to the students of when I talk about the psychology of happiness. And you look at people like, um, I think it was Martin Argyle. And he said, talk to some people about um, the study of happiness or the science of happiness. And ironically, they're not happy about it. They get quite angry. The fact that you're studying something that they think is obvious, Right. you know. I give you a present, you're happy because you've got something for free. Or, you know, I give you 20 pound notes and it makes you happy. You know, there's also all sorts of things you could instantly jump to and think, well, that would make someone happy, that would make someone happy. You're like, mom, we've all got different likes and different morals and different standards, so different things are gonna make different people happy. Mm-hmm. So one example I give to them straight away is, hands up who finds the comedian Peter K funny. About 80% put their hand up, okay, hands down. How many people find Greg Davis funny? different hands up I said I'll go through a number I said there we go these are people that professionally they're all comedians and they're meant to make people laugh and feel happy and yet not all of you get that from that yeah because you've got different tastes and different lights so let's move on to the measurements if we're going to actually measure happiness in a population how can we do that and i showed them some of the basic scales and there were like at scales that were really simplistic of smiley faces through, to, totally a re- disagreed. Yeah, through to a really disagree yeah through to a really sad face but it's really context dependent um, and so I'll put the like it scale up on the board, and I'll do a raise of hands of right. How many of you will put yourself at ten, nine, and I uh, start kind of tallying it up. And then throughout the lecture, I probably do about four or five stops, and I keep on adding them up. But I'll put different pictures up throughout the time, or I might tell something humorous about the research and so forth. And at the end, within the space of an hour, we've got five or six different sets of scores. I said, that's how dodgy it is. I can't just take you and say, this is how happy you are generally. It's not the case within the space of an hour. I've got no consistent scores whatsoever. Yeah. Because it's all changed on what I've just said. Um, something you've just read in an email. If you're looking at your emails while you're in this lecture, something bad's happened at home. Or something a friend's just said to you that you don't agree with. Or they've said something funny because they're whispering something out about me and you're gossiping. It could be a number of things, but it's not a consistent thing. This is something you should be aware of throughout psychology and also science as a whole. Be critical of the measures and the analysis. Are are we really that confident that what we're getting as an outcome is a true measure or a true representation of how things naturally occur?
0: Yeah, that's trait and state well-being, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Uh, Matched up against one another. How happy are you generally? How happy are you right now your life events. Mm. I think that's in my... Po- in my growth lecture, my post-traumatic growth lecture I think we covered
1: that a little bit I, I tried to do something like that the last time that I measured ho- hope, hope. It's yeah it's the last time hope. well I used the Nowatni hope scale mm. which th- there's a number of hope scales the Nowatni one um, it, it's specifically interested in hope at the time of a disaster Yeah. so I reworded it to cater for bereavement um, it's just the opening line so they, they answer the questions in reflection of that so they mm. can think back to this significant bereavement um, but they were all very. Um, it was all based on memory. It was never here and now. You're trying. You you had to word it in such a way that they would answer it in the here and now. But even though it was like, do think about that now when you answer the questions. The questions would then jump to, are you a competitive person? Do you turn to religious scripture for help whenever you're feeling down and all things like that? It gone from theology to sports and competitiveness and personal motivation and self independence and all things like so, that. Too broad. It worked. It worked as a scale and it worked really well as a measure because we got some really interesting outcomes showing right. so many differences in hope levels. Um, but it was all personal reflection and hindsight. It okay. was never in the here and now, which maybe was good because the experiences that they were talking about had already happened some time ago as well. So yeah. not only they were reflecting on that, they're reflecting on, you know, if you were to really think hard about how you felt at the time, how would you answer these questions in relation to that? So...
0: How can people uh, get more from you? How can people get in touch with
1: you? Um, well, a number of ways. You can come and visit us at Waterside Campus because I know that you're doing tours on a golf cart. You'll have a, a little rainbow flag and things like that. To That'll be exciting. Yeah, so people can see where you are. Um, so if you're not visiting us at Waterside Campus, you can go to Twitter and look up at Callum E. Cooper. Or you could go to my website at www.CallumECooper.com. And on there, it's got information about me, my work. Um, there'll be links to this podcast as well, because I'm always tweeting, you're always tweeting what we do, and some links to my books. I've got more books coming out soon as well. I mean, there's one literally within the next few months, and it's taken so long to edit. It's called um, Science Psychotherapy. It's not mine. I- I've been doing a lot of I- archival research for the Alex Town. Ta- Alex Tannis Foundation for Scientific Research. And when Alex died in 1990, um, several months after he'd started the foundation, um, they really put a massive archive together of his work and uh, different lectures that he'd done at the University of Southern Maine and St. John's University in New York City. And um, it seems that even though he'd only managed to get two books out by the point that he died and one came out several months afterwards, which was called... Dream Symbol and Psychic Power, which was more or less a dream interpretation book. Mm. Um, he got several manuscripts that weren't complete. So that's what formed Conversations with Ghosts, which was only like four chapters long, was meant to have been written with Dr. Carlos Osas. Uh But this one's really interesting, and um, people like uh, Professor Adrian Parker from the University of Gothenburg, and um, Professor Stanley Krippner from Saybrook University uh, they really wanted to help construct this. And it's not the book itself. The book was finished. We've just had to tidy up some of the wording. Uh, but we just introduced the the foreword and the afterword to explain where is clinical parapsychology today. Because this is such an unusual manuscript about a, an alleged psychic working in the psychotherapy setting mm. as a therapeutic practitioner, uh, but working alongside a medical doctorate, psychiatrist, and a PhD psychotherapist, so Elaine Swinge and Andrew Bambrick. Um, so those are the three main authors. A really interesting array of qualifications. So you've got Alex Tanis DD, divinity doctorate, and then a medical doctorate and a PhD. Mm. So they've all got such an interdisciplinary approach. And it's about several case studies that they worked with. And so we started by saying this is where clinical par- parapsychology is now. What they're talking about in the book, though, would not happen today. But it's being published for preservation and for historical purposes. Read it, remembering that it was done in 1985, and it's not a reflection on what happened today, but here's where we are today. And then uh, Professor Ryan, um, sorry, Professor Adrian Parker, if I said Adrian Ryan, I'm confusing him with another SPR council member, Professor Adrian Parker from the University of Gothenburg. He's wrapped it up as a clinical psychologist with some of his interpretations of what they were doing. So I'm really fascinated where, where it's gone. I've just been so busy. It's taken ages to get that out. And uh, I'm just um, starting up on um, doing a book on bereavement and um okay. that that's going to be a, a while to do but uh, there's that amongst so many other writing projects we we give ourselves too much to do
0: well next time you once something's finished and it's out oh. there for
1: people to access come back on come out the shit out of it well, <laughs> <laughs> well we're just in the flotation tank stuff that's all wrapped up so i think that'll be the next thing to chat about and Ooh. when we do chat about Thank that you. i think we'll be involved in the second trial so it'd be good uh, you, you and david on yeah um me and David can come on and I think you should come up to Nottingham and try out one of the flotation tanks and speak to Nick there, the director. Yeah, that would uh, be great to get him on too. Look at altered states and why people use the tanks. That'd be awesome. Thanks for coming. Pleasure. Good speaking to you again.